after the uh, first session, before the second one, I forgot to share some more of my cultural analysis with you on that. So I thought I'd do uh, a little bit more here on that. We have some more ways that you might uh, experience things that that Redneck would never say. So here's just a few of them up here. Here's some more of them. Honey, I think we should sell a pickup and buy a nice family sedan. (laughs) Typically won't hear that. Little Debbie snack cakes simply have too many fat grams. Probably not going to hear that. We don't need another dog. <laughs> Duct tape won't fix that. That's probably the, the key marker on that. And I think we have some visuals here. Here would be redneck overalls. Isn't that beautiful? I just think. Here's a redneck high rise. Can you imagine? Seriously, before we go on, can you imagine living in that thing? Holy, wait, wait, what a good storm. I heard you guys had a pretty big storm this last week. Imagine that being in that thing when that came through. Okay, go ahead, do the next one. Redneck security. (laughs) You know, rednecks are big on cars, so we've got a couple that are car-related. Here's another one up there. Car repair. Duct tape will do anything. And then uh, more car repair. Corrugated siding on on the car there. <laughs> that just speaks for itself, doesn't it? <laughs> All right, here's a redneck wedding. Actually, I love it. And here, this last one is actually we'll use as our segue. This is the uh, redneck conflict management. If you can see it up there, it says, My wife, Elise, is cheating on me. And I, oh, man, what a tragedy that this is actually a real picture somebody took and put that up on the side of their house. Wow. So what I want to talk with you all a little bit about is forgiveness lived out loud and the, the process of working through forgiveness within a marriage. So we've, what we've done so far in the cla- or in a class, you can tell I'm a teacher, what we've done so far in our, in our time together is to talk about the foundations and how to understand marriage from a biblical point of view and how God built marriage and then what went wrong. And today, we're, as we're, we're moving into the discussion about um, how the gospel applies to our lives and working this out in marriage, we want to talk about how, how would this help us begin to conflict manage? How, how would it help us to settle disputes in a way that's biblically faithful and honors the Lord as well as honoring one another? So let's do a little bit of review again, again, just to kind of engage you, get you discussing a little bit. Let's go back and, and talk. What, what are big points from the first talk and then... Big points from the second talk, things we want to put into our hearts and minds for the long haul. So go back to what we did first thing this morning. Big ideas about how God built marriages. What are some things you want to keep and take away? Okay, it's not about you. That's a big one. Keep that hammering in your head. It's not about you. Okay, and that comes up hugely in, in uh, uh, forgiveness and conflict resolution. What else? If it's not about you... It is about God. Good. Okay. Good. What else? Big ideas. Do you remember the Latin phrase I used? You might not remember the terms, but that exitus et reditus, what's that idea? Okay, so if anything's created by God, then that thing should be used to give God back the glory. That's why it's not about me. And it is about God as we're trying to get this mentality. And as we drive that into everyday life, it's not only true of marriage. It could be true of the way I do my job, Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, and the way that I do my studies, the way that I parent my children, the way that I really do anything. I'm thinking about even the way I organic farm. 
I'm doing this in a way in which I'm trying to use the things that God's given me and the earth that I've, I live in to return it back to God and his glory. And we can do that with all areas of our life. So if that's true, then the ramifications would certainly matter in marriage. Okay? So we've talked about some of those things. So what was Adam's primary purpose in the garden? To worship and obey. And so when he was given a helper, what was his helper given to him to help him to do? To worship and obey. So that together then they would fill the world with people who are worshipers. So if that's what the primary purpose of marriage is, and then we start to ask the question, what went wrong? That's what we did in our last session together. What were some of the big ideas that you took away from that? What went wrong? And where are we now? Big ideas there. Okay, the uh, abdication of responsibility seems to be a big component of what the human story is. Good. What else? A lack of trust in God's word. And we saw that primarily as this question went on between Adam or Eve and the serpent, but then Adam kind of blowing it off altogether. Good. What else? Big ideas. What might be patterns that are not necessarily right for us to say this will always be true of a woman or always be true of a man, but what might be general patterns that we might see as part of the human story? Okay, all humans would be that way. And I, and I particularly challenge the men on that one here to be, be willing to say, okay, if, if the Lord has come back to Adam and said, Adam, where are you? Then maybe us as men in the room need to say, the primary responsibility for my family relies on me stepping in, not stepping back. Okay, so that might be a, a good habit pattern for us to think. But that doesn't excuse you ladies from being responsible and stepping up in these contexts where you need to as well. But it might be the tendency of us men to let that happen instead of own it. Okay, what else? I picked on you ladies a little bit. I tried to do it gently, but what did I say to you? Okay, so that, that could be a temptation. And again, I don't want to make that a universal, but if that is a temptation, and the Scripture seems to indicate that there's a, a, a flow that might happen more generally, then ladies, what are you responsible to do, not just in marriage, but really in your walk with the Lord? What would you really need to, if your tendency maybe you might fall into deception, what do you need to do to battle that? Exactly, Nikki. So one of the questions you ladies might be asking yourself is, if I want to have a great marriage, could my amount of time that I'm spending reading the scriptures be an indicator of how I'm preparing myself to be greatly married? And if, if the time in the Word is, is simply something that's it happens only occasionally, you're wondering how well are you arming yourself to be the kind of person that God wants you to be. Now again, that would apply to men as well, and I would strongly suggest that for both of them, but it may be a tendency point. And I, and I would say, having been in, in uh, full-time ministry now for 20 years, I would say, and I think my wife would agree on this, that it is more of a tendency for ladies to, to follow their feelings more than to have uh, a rigorous Bible study habit in their life. And even though men tend to be kind of lazy on this, they, when they do it, they tend to be a, a bit more rigorous in the Bible study pattern. So keep that in mind. Those are, again, they're generalities, and I understand that, but it's probably something worth thinking through on that. Any other big ideas from the, the uh, second time, the talk that we did? Big ideas that kind of we want to hold to as we leave.
feelings are leading my decisions and have my spiritual heart. And it's been wonderful to have a solid man in my life who's able to say to me, no, don't go that way. And he gives me good direction to help me make a better decision. Okay, excellent. And thanks for being vulnerable about that. Tim, well done. <laughs> good. Other other big thoughts? Yeah, Tim. Yeah, and this is going to be a big part of where we go this afternoon because if God built us to live this way and sin has brought us to a place where we're not living right and we're conflicting with one another, then the only hope we have to go forward, both for the non-Christian, is to place their faith in Christ and get rightly ordered to God. But for the Christian who's already done that on the basis of, or, or, excuse me, as their foundation of life, to always be returning to that. God, if I'm right with you... Think about this, and we'll talk about it in a second a little bit more. But if I'm right with you, then I'm bulletproof. Because the only relationship that matters in the universe has been set correctly. And so therefore, I have the strength to give. And if someone sins against me, I understand that because I'm a sinner too. And that becomes crucial to us in what we talk about a gospel-centered marriage or gospel-centered life is one that's really deeply ingrained in our own growth and understanding of who we are in Christ, and that will allow us to be strong as we think outwardly from there. Okay, good. I think I have a... If you want to put the next slide up there, you guys in the back, I think I have a kind of a summary statement. Can you do that? Maybe? Go ahead and pop through that a little bit more. Keep going. Keep going. Okay, there we go. In the same way, and you see this on your notes there, I think there's some blanks there. Here's the place you could fill that in if you want to do that. In the same way that your wedding was a declaration of something else, that is, your wedding really declares your love and commitment to each other. So as your wedding day does that, your marriage is also supposed to be a declaration of something bigger. And that's supposed to be of a Christ-honoring uh, worship and a demonstration of the gospel lived out loud. Okay, so here's what I mean by that. Basically, most people spend the majority of their uh, preparation time and engagement for the wedding day and perhaps forget that really what they're doing is they're supposed to be preparing for a marriage. So what we do is we make all these preparations for how this marriage, this wedding, declares our love for one another. But really, what's the 50-year story is how well is your marriage declaring something bigger to the world that's watching? And that's really an important component. So the thesis, if you will, the main point I want to get after here is that properly understanding the practice of biblical forgiveness is the crucial element that, uh, in a marriage that thrives and glorifies God. If you don't understand forgiveness really well, then you're not going to glorify God. And if you really want to glorify God through your marriage, then we've got to understand forgiveness because that's so central to our faith, understanding that. So let me talk for a minute about what we might affectionately call marital adjustment sessions. Do you all ever have marital adjustment sessions for those of you who are married? You know what I mean by those? Those are basically fights that work out, you know, you work them through. They're marital adjustment sessions, uh, to use politically correct language on it. Harriet and I get into these we have a certain kind of pattern in our marriage. We're not yellers. Some of you here today might be yellers in marriage. You know, you, know, you lose your temper, you, you yell, and hopefully you work it out. And then Harry and I tend to be a little bit more passive, kind of quiet fighters and those sorts of things. And then after a while, they'll kind of stir up and, you know. Some of the things that we've had fairly recent 
um, marital adjustment sessions over are things like as a as a teenager grows up to be 17 or 18 year old, how much freedom should he have at night? Now, I grew up in a home where I was the youngest of seven children. Both of my parents were alcoholics. So really, by the time I was 13, I was already stealing my parents' car and driving all over the place. I had a massive amount of freedoms that I shouldn't have had, and I was a delinquent. So when I raise a a child now, I think back on those days, and I think, I didn't die. Let the kid have some fun. He's 18. He can handle himself. And so I I tend to be where I would... You know, if I trust my kid, I'm not going to put them on curfews. Those kind of, I'll be a little bit more low-key on that. My wife comes from a family where the family was more military-run. Her dad was a VMI graduate, and uh, it was just better run, frankly. It was just across the board. It was a better-run family. So when we get to places like that, Harriet has some expectations about how we should shepherd my son. I have some expectations, and they clash. Okay, now, clash is just normal. But how we deal with the clash becomes the big issue. And so we have to have marital adjustment sessions where I learn that I'm wrong and, and I need to get used to that, or where she learns. And in this case, actually, I'm, I'm being tongue-in-cheek. We learn to compromise, talk that through. Other marital adjustment sessions. Um, not too many years ago, we were looking for um, some property. We owned a house in Wake Forest, and I've always thought, man, prices are going to go through the roof. Our community is probably a lot like yours, where as, as Charlotte moves out, price of land is going to go up. Raleigh was moving out toward Wake Forest. I wanted to buy more land if we could while it was cheap. And my wife wisely, exceptionally wisely, thought, you know, hey, time's not right for that. But we really clashed on that one. It's one of our stronger disagreements that we've had in the last couple of years where I just felt really frustrated. You're holding back something I really want to do. And that's kind of the way I told her that. So we had to have a marital adjustment session on how to think that thing through. Very frequently... Couples will have marital adjustment sessions necessary for matters of intimacy. And I've alluded to this in the first discussion. If one's expectations are here and another expectations are here, that can come into hurt and conflict. And I don't know how to talk all those things through. And trying to be careful with one another's hearts and forgive. Now, those are kind of big. But there's also a lot of little ones in life, right? Someone leaves the lights on. And the electric bills goes up, and you get ticked off about that. Or someone leaves their underwear in the bedroom, men, or whatever, on the floor, and men, and socks everywhere, men, and, and things like that. And, and wives get really frustrated with that. And they, so you can have those kind of marital... They, see, it can happen on the big scale, but oftentimes the little ones are the ones that oftentimes generate really big things as well. And this, story, this reminds me of the story of a new bride who moved into a small home with her husband when they got married. And the day they got married... Mom gave the new bride a box, instructed her husband never to touch the box. Well, 50 years go by, and the husband, then uh, the wife gets sick, and the husband's kind of checking up on things, and she's in the hospital. looks like she's probably going to pass away. But he's going around the house, and he's checking things out, and he finds this box. And he's, ne- he's never touched it in the 50 years he'd been married. And so he finally takes it to his wife, and he asks her about it. Because when he looked inside, he found that there was $92,000 and three doilies. Okay, now here's a, here's a quiz for you guys. You guys know what a doily is? Probably the younger you are, the less chance you know what it is. A doily is one of those really, uh, this is a, a male perspective, forgive me ladies, really worthless little piece of lace that you put on their lamps. Sometimes you see those in places. Now, you ladies might have a different opinion. That's my opinion. Anyway, he found three of those in a box with $92,000. And he goes to his wife, hey, honey, what is this? 
And she says to him, well, you know, actually, my mom gave me this box on the day we were married. She said, every time that you get mad at your husband, so doily. And he was touched. You mean over the 50 years of marriage, you've only been mad at me three times? She says, no, actually, the $90,000 is the money I got from selling all the doilies I made over the years. (laughs) See, here's, here's the reality, folks. The reality is... The reality is, you are married to a sinner. No surprise there. Here's the more important thing for you to remember. So is your spouse. So is your spouse. And it doesn't take long. Really, it doesn't even take most of us to even get through the honeymoon before we realize that what we all thought was this angel I'm marrying is actually a fallen angel. And we sin against each other. That's just the fact of the matter. So if you look at that quote from Gary Thomas, one of the books that uh, FUDS recommended for you all is a book called Sacred Marriage, outstanding book, and you see a quote from it there on your notes. Gary Thomas says this very well. The romantic roller coaster of courtship eventually evens out to the terrain of the Midwestern interstate. And when this happens, couples respond in different ways. Many will break up and try to recreate the passionate romance with somebody else. Other couples will descend into, listen to this language, will descend into a kind of marital guerrilla warfare as each partner blames the other for personal uh, dissatisfactions or lack of excitement. Now, if you have your Bible, let's go to 1 Corinthians 7. I want you to see the very interesting verse that's actually a little troubling. First Corinthians chapter 7. Can I get someone to read this? I'm going to do more of you all reading because it's after lunch, so you need to kind of keep up there. So, someone volunteer to read 1 Corinthians 7, 28. Let me get your husband to read. Stephen, do you mind reading it for us? Okay. Okay, will you read the second half of that again? It's, and, and pay attention to what Paul's telling them. Sounds like that's kind of put in promise form, isn't it? Any of you have any of those Bible pocket promise books? (laughs) You probably won't find this one in there, but it sounds like it's a good prediction here, doesn't it? If you marry, you will have distress. And in the context of what Paul's saying in in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, he'd almost rather you not get married so that you can be more dedicated to the ministry. But if you're going to marry, realize you're going to have distress in this world. I can remember the first distress I had with my wife. Let me tell this story here. Our distress was over a shoe. Okay, so we were newly married. Our first year of marriage, actually the first couple months of marriage. Uh, this is always kind of a, a little bit embarrassing for both of us, but more so for me. I was just an idiot. But my, my wife went to a school called Sweetbriar College, which was an all-women's college. If you don't say all-girls school, they don't like it when they've gone to an all-women's college. So at the all-women's college that she went to, they have reunions. Every five years, they have the, the class comes back much like many of you do for high school. So we were going to go to Harriet's five-year reunion at Sweetbriar College. And uh, at Sweetbriar College, the guys that would come to date the gals would usually come from Hampton, Sydney, or University of Virginia, a little higher class than the Lederbach clan. 
Okay, so the way that worked out is that when we got married, um, what would you say my best kind of clothes were? Yeah, I you know it's just I was the youngest of seven, uh, kind of grew up as just a, a cut off jeans guy. Okay, I'm cut off jeans. When I was in high school, my hair was down to here. You know, I wore bandana out of my back pocket and you know t-shirts all the time. That's just kind of the way I dressed. That was dressing up for me. That was kind of nice. Okay, so I marry this this sweet beautiful woman, and she's used to a different context. And so if we're going to go back to this reunion, and I showed up dressed like that, that'd be embarrassing for her. So she was desirous that I would have on khakis, kind of a polo, and, and some shoes that were like deck shoes. Everybody know what deck shoes are? Okay. Yeah, boat shoes, basically, on that. There was no way I was going to wear boat shoes. <laughs> Absolutely no way. I was a Chuck Taylor guy or flip-flops. That was, that was all it was going to be, and that's, that's the whole deal. So, <laughs> so here's how the fight evolved. Hey, honey, I'm just wondering if you mind wearing some of these clothes to the reunion that we're going to. What? You're trying to change me! You're trying to change Don't you love me for who I am? I just want you to wear some nicer clothes. No, you don't! You married this guy and you want me to change! And We got into this heated fight where we're, I'm holding the shoe and I'm chasing her around the house. We're talking about this shoe. It was over a shoe. And now, look at the great irony. 21 years later, I chose these shoes myself, and I'm wearing them here. I mean, you just think of how stupid some of the things we fight over. Because really what was going on, it wasn't really about the shoe. It was about my own pride. My wife was asking me to do something to bless her, and I read it like you're trying to change me. A marital adjustment session. Look, when you get married, you'll bump into other people's prides. You'll bump into your own pride. Now, while it starts like over something like a shoe... When these things aren't handled right, what happens in culture is you have 50% of Americans divorce. Something deeper is happening. You have 7.2 years of marriage. Now, in the church, here's the great danger we've run into, and here's where I want to try to get more, move, turn a little bit practical with you. And I mentioned this in the beginning in the first session. One of the dangers in the church is instead of really de- dealing with our sinful hearts, The tendency has been when you go to marriage conferences that you deal primarily with skills. Now, you need to do both, but here's the idea. If I can just learn your love language, then we'll get through this. Well, again, love languages might be helpful, but wouldn't it be better if you said you were sorry and admitted you were a sinner and then tried to work on the skills? But we in the church, we've come to a place where what we're worried about is techniques, so Harriet and I, when we lived in Denver, I was in seminary out there, and uh, she worked at Liz Claiborne selling clothes there while I was in school. I worked at UPS and went to school full-time. And we met a couple there that uh, Harriet actually worked for the wife, and, the, and I worked for the husband building decks on the side for a while. And they were about five years into their marriage and really struggling. And uh, the husband's complaint was that they weren't having much enjoyment of their sexual experience in their marriage. So as I was building decks with him, he kept telling me, that I need to take my wife to a sexual therapist because if we can learn better techniques, then everything will be okay in our marriage. I thought to myself, oh, you poor man. It's actually the exact opposite. It's when you learn to have a great marriage and learn to extend forgiveness that you'll figure out the fun of exploring the sexual component of your life. But he had it just like a man. It was all about fixing it. 
That's dangerous. The fix-it kind of mentality without the deeper recognition that we're sinners on that. So let's look at some passages of Scripture. Many of you know these probably even by heart, but let's look at a few of them. I think I have some of them on overhead if you if you want to do it that way. Romans 3.23. Someone want to read that out loud for us? You can flip to that on that. Brantley, do you mind doing that? Do you have your Bible? Good. You did it well on that. There you go. Yeah. Notice this uh, second word. It's really important to see that. All. There's not one of us in the room that hasn't fallen short of the glory of God. That's, that's, the scripture tells it very cleanly, cleanly and plainly. Excuse me. Look at Ecclesiastes 9.3. Is it up there? Yeah. All the hearts of men. And when it says men there, it means the human race. All the hearts of the human race are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. The biblical picture of the human is not necessarily cheerful. Look at Jeremiah seventeen nine. Is that you got one for that? No. Okay. Jeremiah seventeen nine. Let me read it to you. It says this: The heart is deceitful above all things, and it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah seventeen nine. I want you to look on your on your notes. You have two quotes there. These are from non Christians. Actually, it's really interesting. This uh, Helen Rowland and Frank Pittman. Look at their. These are non Christians making assessment of marriage. They say this: marriage is the operation by which a woman's vanity and a man's egotism are extracted without anesthetic. That's what marriage does to us. It puts us in places where we bump into each other. Frank Pittman, a non-believer, again, listen to this commentary. People that can't keep a commitment to stay married and love another person for the rest of their lives don't have marriage problems. They have character flaws. This is a non-Christian saying this. The primary reason for marital unhappiness and divorce is selfishness. So perhaps if we're focusing just on skills, we're missing something much, much deeper. So here's the good news. Let's, I think I have a slide for that. The good news, believe it or not, marriage not only exposes our own sinful hearts, it can also expose the gospel. So let me, let me flesh this out for you a little bit. See, there's, there's really two aspects of sin that we face every single day. Two aspects of sin. The first of those is that we're exposed to our, our spouse's sin. Every single day. We're always very acutely aware of this. It doesn't take too long that you begin to see the sins of your spouse lived in living color before you. Sooner or later, we're all going to recognize that. So here's what happens. There's a term up here. See if there's another slide that puts on the term spouse view, but it's on your notes. Once you think about this, does everybody here know what a worldview is? A worldview is basically the framework by which you see your world and interpret it. And everybody has a worldview. So let's say if you grew up in China, you're just going to see the world largely dependent upon how the Chinese culture you grew up in will shape the way you, you think. Likewise, if you grew up in the United States, you're going to have some, some presuppositions, some things about the way that you see your world. And everybody has a worldview. That's just the way it is. What happens with us in marriage is that we likewise begin to develop what we could call a spouse view. Let me explain this idea to you. What will happen over time in a marriage is that people's behaviors will begin to shape our expectations. 
So a husband and wife are married. Let's call them Bill and Mary. And over the course of time, Mary recognizes a certain pattern in Bill that Bill, you could choose anything since I said it before, that Bill always leaves his laundry on the floor and expects Mary to pick it up and do it. Okay, That begins to happen not in the, just the first year of marriage, but over a course of 10 years, that's just simply been Bill's pattern. What will happen with Mary is that Mary will just simply grow to expect that Bill is like this and Bill will never change. So that when they, when they start to get into conflict and Mary asks Bill to change that, she's just never going to believe he's actually going to change that. See, a, a view about the way that the very way that she views this man has now been shaped in a certain direction. He, that you develop an expectation that over time the other person's failings you start to they'll never change. It's just the way he is. It's just the way she is. And that spouse view that grows. Now, follow with me when you think about how that helps or how that shapes our interaction. What happens when your spouse view, in other words, your vision of your spouse is dominated by the expectation that that person's going to sin? Interact with me a little bit on this one. When your spouse view is dominated by the point of view that this person's going to sin, what can be the tendencies for us in marriage? You might give up for What's that? You might give up on praying for him. Can you walk that through a little bit? Why might that be? I think you're right. Why? Do you, why? In your mind, you've already decided you've never done it. Listen to God. Anyway. Yeah. So you become dominated by this dark kind of expectation of the other. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So not only do you expect they're going to act a certain way, now you're also bringing into it this person's an idiot or this person's just selfish or you just so all the dark motives that could could go with that. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, Jack. Okay, let's follow Jack's thought on this. What, will that, what, what, what that will sound like in your heart is, I would never do that kind of thing to you. So you've developed that spouse view that kind of turns into a pharisaical, I don't do that to you. And what you're forgetting when you say that is you have your whole other categories of things that you do do to that person. It's kind of like this. You all, have, you all ever have this experience when you're driving down the road and uh, you're trying to yield onto a highway? And the people speed up next to you and you get really, really mad at them. But then when you're the one that's on the highway and someone's trying to yield it, you speed up and you get mad at the other person for trying to yield in front of you. 
So we, we, it's like we have this double standard going on in the way that we think. Someone's driving too slow and you're behind them, you're ticked. But if you come up fast behind somebody, you're in the right. Wait a minute. And see, spouse views are kind of like that. We only see the world from our point of view and we're putting the most negative on the other without recognizing this side of ourselves. Now, here's the key. I want you to get this is probably the second massive idea that if you can get this will really help shape your marriage well. The scripture actually affirms your spouse view. Here's what I mean by that. Do you remember the scriptures we just read? They just told us that all have sinned. The scriptures tell us that the heart is deceitfully wicked. So when you look at your spouse and you understand that they're probably going to sin, guess what? You're right. But here's the problem. The problem isn't that your spouse is going to sin. The problem is how are you going to respond when they do sin? And let me bring the point very crystal clear. The crazy thing is that when we're right and they have sinned, we think that gives us a right to love less. But the gospel tells us that that's exactly the time when you love more. Do you follow that point? See, the gospel tells you that while you were yet a sinner, what did Christ do? This is Romans 5.8. Christ died for you. So the love picture in the Bible is... God demonstrates his love in that while you were a sinner, you do something wrong, Christ moves in with more love. This is where the wickedness of our heart is, is that when someone sins against me, I think I have a right to love them less. I'm going to step back. I'm going to yell at you. It's not gospel. And perhaps that's the most transformative idea on how you can think through working through struggles. When someone sins against you, The foolish thing is that you think, I think, we all think that it gives us a basis to love less when the gospel tells us right at that moment, that's when we love more. I don't know about you, every time I teach this at this point, I get under heavy conviction myself. Anybody else there on that one? Yeah. Okay, here's the the takeaway on that one. The reality is that there's no one on this planet that sins against you more than your spouse. But the other reality is there's no one on this planet that sins against your spouse more than you. Okay, now the second aspect of sin that we face daily is, therefore, it's not only the other person's sin, but the the fact of the matter is, is that we face our own sin daily. And that's really an important part for us to see. And that's why I I ended the last session to say it's really, really important that we get in the habit of understanding, okay, I'm going to look to my own heart and understand where I've sinned so that I can then go in confession. What do you think? Let me ask this as a question out loud. If it's true that the gospel helps us to see not only the other person's sin and recognize that, but that it also exposes our own sin... What would happen in a marriage if the primary motive of your heart was to seek correction in your marriage? What would happen in marriages if if you just said the spouse view that was developed in your house is that your wife or your husband knows that you're going to come to them and say, hey, would you please correct me? I want to be more like Christ. If that was the dominant thought of husbands and wives, how would that change marriages? Yeah, can. 
exactly. Yeah, you would have a sense in which you're trying to be better for one another. Good. Other thoughts? How many shift? Mark, you have a thought there? I called you out. I'm sorry. No, so, but that, that Mark, that, that's exactly where we are. Is it Lisa? Is that right? So let's say Lisa, so you, something goes on in your marriage and Lisa brings it to your attention. I won't go any further with that. You guys can have this context all to yourselves. But the point here is what if you're, if the disposition of Mark or for all of us was, I'm really glad you told me that. What other areas do I fail you in? Now, obviously, that's really hard to do. But think that. Just think that out. If that was your disposition, what would happen in your marriage? You would be sharpened. Yeah. Good. What else? Give me, can, Heather. Can you give me a more specific? How would that overflow into? That? I think you're right. Think about it, even in the way you would listen to your pastor's sermon. Would not be defensive. It would be, man, I wonder what I'm going to get today that's going to help me be like Christ. It would maybe help me in the way I think through with my children. If, my, if I do something stupid and my kid actually tells me that, instead of saying, that's not your place, I might say, man, you're right, I'm sorry. See, our dispositions would then become the kind that invites a person to move into our world and ideally, that person would be gentle as they move. But even if they're not, here's what I'm confronting. I'm the biggest sinner in my marriage. And if I'm committed to that reality, then I need your help to make me better. <laughs> the whole, you know, how could you do this to me? You know, kind of thing. When it takes the tension and the anger and the whole "I deserve better" and "I'm better than you" argument kind of takes all the Yeah. So, uh, application point—a pretty obvious one. I think you guys have all already made it. But ask yourself the question: How well do you receive rebuke? Now, I'm the dean of students at the seminary. This is a new job for me. I've only been doing it for 11 months, but I have to do a lot of rebuking now with students. They get in different things. And one of the things I tell them almost all the time now is this simple statement. The way a man or a woman receives a rebuke tells you much about yourself. So think about that in your marriage context. The way that you receive a rebuke tells you much about your character. It tells you much about your character. Your deepest need, here's a big thought bomb, your deepest need in your marriage is not to be loved. 
Rather, your deepest need is to keep on drinking deeply from the never-ending fountain of the love that has already been poured out for you and then pass that along. Okay, so let's talk about some very specifics. Here's some gospel dispositions of forgiveness in marriage. And we'll work through these. And if you have some questions later, we can kind of re-engage any one of these if you want. But here's some things. I mentioned 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17. Uh, let me read it to you. Um, I don't think I have it up on the screen behind me. So 1 Timothy chapter 1. Listen to Paul's description of himself. This is the Apostle Paul. He says in 1 Timothy 1, 15, It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. And if you're there in the Bible, listen or look at this and listen. Among whom I am the foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example. Do you see yourself as the number one sinner in your marriage? Do you see yourself as the number one sinner in your marriage? The scripture models this for you, that your disposition in your marriage is that, look, Harriet and I have been married for 21 years. There's things that I'm good at, things that she's good at. But there's no doubt in my mind I'm the biggest sinner in my marriage. And all I need to do is start looking at the ways that I have failed her to get that understanding. How's that going in your life? How are you thinking about that? That's a first really good tool. Second really good tool in marriage in a gospel's disposition of forgiveness is this. I must realize that circumstances and spouses do not cause me to sin. Rather, they reveal sin. So everybody grab your Bible. Let's look to see where this is actually said in the Scriptures. Mark chapter 7. And if someone will please read 7, 15, and then 21 through 23. Can I get a volunteer to do that? You can read off the board behind me if you'd like. Someone want to volunteer? Yeah, go ahead, Heather. Thanks. Okay, so please see this here, that it's not your external circumstances of life that cause you to sin. Scripture tells us that your heart's deceitful already. So the the image you should have here is that life circumstances and marriage, what they do is they squeeze you like you're a sponge. If If you just have that picture in your mind, what comes out of a sponge when you squeeze it? Whatever is inside of it. So life circumstances and your spouse, they don't cause you to sin. What they do is they squeeze you. And in other words, it's telling you about what's already in your heart. Therefore, we have no reason to blame. Now, somebody might have done something unjust and that squeezes you, but how you respond is your own. Okay, so you're the biggest sinner in marriage and life's circumstances nor your spouse. They don't cause you to sin. It's what is inside of your heart that's being squeezed out. 
Those are massive. Folks, we never sin because somebody else. We sin because we're sinners. Okay, the third thing. Gospel forgiveness. I must realize that if marriage is going to change, I have to change. Me. I must realize that the only person I can change in my marriage is myself. This is frustrating. Just say it plainly. Harriet can't change me. I can't change her. What I can do as a husband is I can set the sails, hope that the wind will blow. I can watch the kids more. I can free up her schedule to have time with the Lord. I can, uh, I can serve. I can do dishes. I can do all kinds of things. But she's going to have to change on her own right between her and the Lord, likewise with me. And so I better work aggressively on my own heart. I've got to change my own heart. Now, here's, let me be a little bit humorous, but very, very serious at the same time. If at this moment you are saying to yourself, I sure hope my husband is listening, or I sure hope my wife is listening, you missed the point. Okay? That would be really good if they're listening because they need it, but what really you should be thinking is, I need this. Okay? And then... A fourth point of gospel-centered forgiveness. I must realize what 2 Corinthians twelve nine tells me is that God's grace is sufficient for me right now in my life context. And then fifth, forgiveness is not forgetting. Sometimes people misunderstand what the Scripture says here. Actually, what forgiveness is, is choosing to remember no more. So let me get you to feedback with me a minute. Let's think through the difference. And you, you all do this verbally. What's the difference between forgiving and forgetting and forgiving and choosing not to remember anymore? What's the difference between those two? I mean, uh, forgetting is involuntary almost, right? Or when something pops up into your consciousness, oh, shoot, I, I must not be good at uh, forgiving because I remember. Yeah. Good, Andy. That's very good. Anybody else want to take a shot at it? What's the difference between choosing not to remember anymore and forgetting? It's also learning from the process of forgiveness and not, like you were saying, not going into the situation. Yeah. There's an old Garth Brooks song. If any of you listen to country music, it's called We Bury the Hatchet But Leave the Handle Sticking Out. And I think that's the point, is that um, sometimes we can get over the conflict, but this problem is never really dealt with, and people keep returning to this old thing. Do you remember when you did this? I can't trust you anymore. Well, forgiveness is willing, being willing to say, I am not going to hold this against you and use it as a weapon. The memory of that event comes up in my mind. I have to recognize it for what it is, which is the temptation. 
to slip into sin and to remember anger or bitterness or to remember those things and I have to call it what it is when it comes up and says, no, I will not. I will not go there again. Yeah. Because I have forgiven and I'm moving on from that. Yeah. I will not do that. I think that's choosing to remember. That's exactly right. It's an act of the will decision on there. So let me give you these next two pieces on the outline that you have in front of you. A biblical definition, if you will, a biblical definition of forgiveness is to release, to set free, the cancellation of debt. So four promises of forgiveness will be very similar to what Carrie just said. The first promise of forgiveness is, I will not dwell on this incident in my mind. I promise you as I forgive you that I will not Dwell on this, and that's hard work sometimes. It's very difficult work, Tim. I think we can take our, our best examples from God. He looks at us. Yeah. And he says to you, you know, he sees us, our sins are far east from the west. He doesn't see them anymore. When he looks at us, he sees uh, a righteous person, he sees through Christ. He's not, I mean, it's not like he can't see. Mm-hmm. He's doing exactly what, he, what you're telling us to do. He's choosing not to look at us as the person who did that. Yes. And thanks be to God for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so the first promise, I will not dwell on this. I will not. The second promise, I will not uh, bring, is what, if I have it misspelled, it's misspelled on mine. I will not bring this incident up against you again. I will not return to this. I'm not going to use this as a weapon. Third promise of forgiveness, I won't go talk to others about it. Now, that doesn't mean you can't go to counseling or go to your pastor. What this means is you don't start going to your friends and snipping about your spouse. That you're promising that you won't do that because that will fester the wound. And then four, I will do my, I promise you I will do my best to keep this from hindering our relationship into the future. One last place where let me, I'll give you some practical skills and then we'll take a break. One of the ways to kind of very specifically do this is to practice what on your notes is called the replacement principle. And if you look down a little bit from where I just finished, three words in your thought and your word and your deed. And your deed. Can you see that on your notes? You all found that? This is really hard to do, forgiveness, especially when someone's offended you greatly. And choosing to not think about it, Carrie, as you're doing, sometimes it's really hard work. So a practical skill that counselors will oftentimes use at a point like this is called the replacement principle. And that is basically, in regard to your thought, if we find it difficult to stop thinking about this incident, then we need to become intentional to find other things to think about. I'll give you a real practical experience of this. Uh, when Harriet was little, when you got scared, what did you think about? Okay, when she was little, she gets scared in her bedroom. She would turn her mind and start thinking about decorating the Christmas tree. Now, why? Because it's better than being scared. Yeah. So it's a pleasant thought about doing this. So the replacement principle is in your mind. You can do that when you're thinking down this track to choose to start thinking about other things. And this is the pattern of Scripture. You think about lust. Paul says, Timothy, flee youthful lust. But the way you do that is you pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So what we're doing with our minds is the same thing. If you want to flee a bad thought, then choose a good thought to dwell on. That's the first thing, the replacement principle. Second, make it a point to speak graciously about your spouse and to your spouse. In other words, if your spouse has done something that's really offended you, replace the thought, do the forgiveness, but then actually start to compliment the spouse. Because what you're doing is not only building them up, but you're reminding yourself that forgiveness has already taken place.
Very difficult to do when you feel offended. Thirdly, love in action. Do some kind of random action of kindness towards the spouse, even in the face of sin. I told you about the gal that cut my hair. Her husband is sinning against her, and she goes out and she buys edible fruits for him. Well, she's not seeing the whole picture, but that's really a smart thing to do. She's trying to train her heart to give when she's not receiving. The replacement principle. Let me get you just to think back, and we'll close with this. Think back to Romans chapter 5, verse 8, and I'll quote it to you. God demonstrates his love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ moved in and loved more. He died for us. The ability to radically forgive your spouse is dependent upon how much you understand you have been radically forgiven. The way Jesus said it is that those who have been loved, who love little, have not understood the gospel in essence. They don't understand how much they've been loved, so they only love a little. If you see yourself as a chief sinner, and you understand if God can forgive you, then who in the world am I to not forgive them? Let me let that sink in a little bit through prayer. And we'll take a break and we'll come back and let's chat at break on that. Father, thank you that you forgave us. Honestly, Lord, I think all of us would say in the room, it's really difficult at times to see ourselves as the chief of sinners when we've been really hurt by others. Help us to understand, Lord, as we gaze in the mirror of our own wickedness, that if you could love us, how arrogant would it be that I didn't love another? So help the motions of our heart change from being, it's all about me and my justice, to it's all about Christ, his forgiveness, and how can I model that? Lord, let these things permeate and transform our lives and our marriages and our church. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.